Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Happy Monday, everybody. How you doing? What perfume are you wearing? Or cologne? Or whatever. Nothing for me. I just I just smell like man. How's it going? Lee Stranahan, welcome to Monday. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Another great show for you today. Joining me later on in the program is John Cardillo. I had John as the guest on my Making the News podcast this week, which you can check out on iTunes. Just search for Making the News and you'll find out uh, how to find the Making the News podcast. We've got 12 episodes up right now. John Cardillo is number 12. Great guests there like Stephen K. Bannon, an interview I did with him a few years ago, but still, he's a hot property, so I posted it. Brandon Darby, Cassandra Fairbanks. Cassandra was supposed to be on the show today, and we put that out, but... You've heard the breaking news probably already. If you've been checking the news out, hard to miss that the Russian ambassador to Turkey was killed in Ankara, Turkey, after being shot by an Alua Akbar shouting assassin. By the way, always a giveaway when they shout Alua Akbar that something's up. And so that news, Cassandra works for a Sputnik, which is a Russian news source, and therefore she got busy. So we will have Cassandra Fairbanks on another day when hopefully no Russian ambassadors have been shot by jihadists. I just did a periscope about this. It's pinned up on my Twitter page right now. It's already got about 3,000 views, which, as uh, my son and faithful assistant Shane points out, is ironic since if you listen to the end of the Periscope, I point out to people that, you know, thousands of views on Periscope doesn't count for much. But it was a different context. 3,000 views on Periscope is a decent number. Uh, And it's interesting that that rant that I did, that I'll repeat a little bit of here, has already gotten 3,000 views. I think it's because it's breaking news, probably. But I view that what's happening right now in Ankara, Turkey, with the Russian ambassador being shot and with reports that there's another shooting near the U.S. embassy. I don't know whether that's related. We don't have any details on that for you. If we get them throughout the show, we'll update you. But I view this as a consequence of the fake news reporting on Syria. Now, you've heard me talk a lot about Syria. If you're a listener of the show in the past week or so, you've heard Syria come up quite a bit. And it comes up for a reason. There's a reason I bring up Syria. And there's a reason that I went to Beirut, Lebanon in 2013. It's because I saw that Syria was, I felt strongly, the biggest story in the world right now. And that was the place to be. At the time, our president, Barack Obama, was getting ready to shoot missiles into Syria. 
getting ready to bring the U.S. to war. And I saw what was happening there, and it seemed like one of the biggest – look, this is one of the biggest buried, suppressed stories of the past few years, is how the U.S. has supported the quote-unquote rebels in Syria, the quote-unquote moderate Muslims, who are tied at the hip and fighting right alongside the jihadist. The jihadists are the powerful group over there. And what we've seen in Aleppo is this new coalition, which is basically no moderates, this new coalition called the Army of Conquest, that's who started in on Aleppo back in November. That's who's been attacking Aleppo. And so I mentioned this, like I say, I went over there in 2013. I started to play this on Friday's show, but I did it at the very end of the show. So I'm going to play this for you early, but... I'm going to keep urging you to call. Now, you listen. You're my audience members, and I do love you. I care about you deeply. I do respect you. I will call you in the morning. But here's the thing. You need to call me, too. This is the two-way street, people. So I'm going to once again urge you during the show, when we have John Cardillo as a guest, you could call in. You could call in to talk about this topic. But I'm going to keep urging you to call in. Let's play the jingle, shall we? You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. By the way, technically it's not a jingle, it's a bumper, but you know, that's inside radio talk. Number to call, 619-924-0786. That number again, 619-924-0786. Call in to be part of the show. I want to hear your opinions on the news of the day or any of the topics we're going to talk about. What I started to play on Friday is is the audio from a video that I made. Does that make sense? Let's go over that again, shall we? So I made a video in 2013. Let me tell that story. Because it shows how productive I can be if I try. So I was in Beirut, Lebanon. I I flew there. I crowdfunded the trip. And by the way, this is a a story that I had to quit my job at Breitbart to cover. Because at the time, they weren't interested in covering it, which I still think is their loss, but I digress. Uh, So I I had to crowdfund the trip to go over there. And almost immediately, my laptop uh, broke. My laptop the fan broke specifically. So the fan was not swirling. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Beirut, Lebanon, but it's, it's, it can be on the warm side. Now, add to that the fact that in Beirut, they don't really have central air conditioning. It's like England. I don't want you to be confused. Beirut is not like – I you know, when I was in Beirut, I was there for about 10 days. When I go to a city, I like to live there. When I go to a city, I like to experience the city. So I didn't even stay at a hotel in Beirut. I stayed at someone's apartment through Airbnb, service I like and use. And uh, when I was there, I went to grocery stores. I went to the mall. There's a nice mall in Beirut. The thing I tell people about Beirut is that I realized Beirut was not the way I pictured 
See, I'm an American. I'd never been to the Middle East. So like a lot of Americans, I just assumed that I'd get to Beirut and there'd be like a bowl of hummus and two camels, right? That's kind of what I pictured. And and one of the bowls of hummus would belong to the camel. Maybe there'd be two bowls of hummus. I don't know what I thought. But here's what I didn't picture. I told I tell people, I realized Beirut was different than I thought it would be. When I was at the mall, standing in front of the lingerie shop that was just down the hall from the P.F. Chang's. And by the Cronut place. That's what I tell people. So there is. There's a P.F. Chang's Chinese restaurant at the mall in Beirut. And by the way, the hummus is fantastic. Let me just point that out. The hummus is really great. But you know what? I had good sushi in Beirut, too. I went to a nice sushi place as well. So the city's a little different, but they don't have central air conditioning, which makes them as third world as, uh, I think, England. Because, by the way, I noticed that when I was in – last time I was in England, I stayed at a hotel, and they just didn't have central air conditioning at the hotel. Because whatever. So that's something we we take for granted. The central air conditioning industry in the United States – is booming apparently, and the rest of the world needs to catch up with us in that regard. So I'm in Beirut, and uh, like I said, I like to go to grocery stores and stuff like that. I like to feel like I'm living there. So there's no air conditioning in the apartment, and the fan on my computer breaks. I don't know how technical you are. I'm, my goal is to make you smarter. I am America's finest journalist, and the reason why is because I make you smarter with every story I write. And with every episode of Radio Stranahan, I make you smarter as well. Here's, here's the way I'm making you smarter right now. Now, pay attention. I don't know how technical you are. But when the fan breaks on a computer and it's hot, it's bad. Did I get over your head there? Let's go over that again. If you use a computer in a hot climate, like Beirut with no air conditioning, and your fan breaks, it's not good. Because the computer overheats. So I had a computer that I could use for about 10 minutes at a time. I could turn it on. I could check my email or whatever. And then it was it. So I've gone over to Beirut. I said I was going to be doing reporting from Beirut. And I did. But I couldn't write blog posts. Does that make sense? Because my computer wasn't working. And I was like, well, maybe I'll write stuff when I got back. And then I had the genius idea. That was an anticipatory pause right there. I told you it was going to be a genius idea, and then I left you hanging. This is a trick of rhetoric, by the way. See, you're learning something new there, too. I left you hanging. It's a cliffhanger. So here's what I did. There's a street in Beirut, Hamra Street. Hamra Street is like the main commercial drag of Beirut. It's where the Radio Shack was. I don't know if it's there anymore, but there was a Radio Shack. I'm not making that up. The Caribou Coffee was there. The Starbucks Coffee was there. All your major coffee places were there. Another mall, an even fancier mall. All the clothing stores, more lingerie shops. So picture that, right? I'm on Hamra Street, and all of the coffee shops God bless them, had Wi-Fi. 
and it was it was pretty good Wi-Fi. So here's what I thought to myself. Self, I thought to myself, I can't write blog posts. I have all this information. I have all these things I've learned. How can I get this reporting out? So what I decided to do was to take my iPhone, which is basically your your phone if you have a smartphone. If you have a flip phone, first off, I don't know how you're listening to this. Second off, get with it, okay? Get with it. The only time I see flip phones anymore are on TV crime shows when they're like a burner phone. Have you heard that phrase? They talk about burner phones, like it's a cell phone that's used. I don't even quite know how that works because a burner phone, in my experience, you have to give some information. But I digress again. But any smartphone, you've got the ability to record audio, record video, and upload. It's like a TV truck in your pocket, which sounds dirty. I know it does. If someone says to you, is that a TV truck in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? First off, if you're a woman, you should be totally insulted. If you're a dude, you should be a little gratified. But still, it sounds dirty. But my point is, those TV satellite trucks have the ability to upload, and they have the ability to, you know, cameras and audio gear. Well, so does my phone. So what I did was I took my my light tripod. I have a tripod that's very light. And I have a little mount for it that I can put my phone in. And I realized I need to get out a ton of information quickly. And so my plan was to go around Beirut. I had all this information I wanted to convey about the attitudes that I saw in Beirut towards Israel, about the attitudes towards Syria, about what Syrian refugees had told me, about what Christian Syrian refugees had told me, about all the stuff I'd learned. So what I did was I took my phone, I took my tripod, I went around the city. The reason I went around was so I wouldn't be in one location with one backdrop. It was pretty easy but look, this is how much I care about you, the audience. I told you I loved you and that I would respect you and I would call you in the morning. I told you that. This is a great example of that. I wanted, I, I cared so much. I wanted to make sure you had interesting backdrops. So what I did was I went around the city and I recorded 24 videos in one day. The number could be off by like one or two it may have been 23, it may have been 26, but I think it was 24 videos in one day. I would go record like a three-minute video, then I'd go somewhere else, record another one, then I'd record another one. After I'd recorded four or five of them, I would go to a coffee shop, check in with the Wi-Fi, upload four or five of them while drinking a refreshing caffeinated beverage, which probably added to my diabetes. Okay, let's skip that part. So what I did was I up, would upload the videos in batches, and I was doing them, and then people back home were seeing them. And people like uh, the great Ed Morrissey, friend of mine, conservative writer, commentator, talk show host, Ed said very nice things about what I was doing. Michelle Malkin said very nice things about what I was doing, which I appreciated. And I'll play you some of that video. I'm going to play you what I said about Aleppo. Aleppo. Aleppo is different. In just a couple minutes, it's 15 minutes past the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. By all first mention, uh, Lee Stranahan. 
cuddly. He's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club. For reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. That, of course, my friend, the great Andrew Breitbart. I'm looking for something. I can't find it. Hey, Shane, I don't see him here. I'm looking for something to play you. I see the Aleppo one. Oh, I, I see. See, I thought things were alphabetical. It's a very complex operation we run here. Here's what I've done. This is how, again, this is how much I care. The show today is brought to you by Citizen Journalism School, my own Citizen Journalism School. You can learn more about it at citizenjournalismschool.com. And, hey, look at this an actual one-minute promo about it. Here you go. Here's a commercial I pre-recorded. Let's play it, shall we? Are you tired of the mainstream media and you want to make a difference? Do you read the newspapers or watch TV and think that you can do better? This is Lee Stranahan, and that's why I started Citizen Journalism School. You can check it out at citizenjournalismschool.com, and you'll see why I created a place where you can learn to research, write, promote the stories, make a difference, and make a living doing it. I'd like you to go over to citizenjournalismschool.com right now and sign up for a free course I've got for you. It's called Build Your Media Empire, and the course takes you step-by-step online through the things you need to do to set up the platforms so you can share your voice and your stories. I'll show you how to set up material so you can do writing, podcasting, video, Best of all, it's absolutely free. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com and sign up right now. You're listening to Radio Strandhand, 18 minutes past the hour. Shane and I are working. We have an exciting guest booking last because we dropped Cassandra. We didn't drop her. I would never drop Cassandra. We lost her because of events, including the shooting death of the Russian ambassador to Turkey in Ankara, something that clearly relates to Syria. How do we know that? Because the dude who did the shooting, there's video of him shouting about how this is payback for Aleppo in Syria. So I was talking before that short break about how I was in Beirut in 2013, and I recorded these 24 videos. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play for you in its entirety one of the videos, uh, the audio from one of the videos. This is me talking about Aleppo. And you got to remember, this is over three years ago. So this will make you smarter. This is me talking about Aleppo, Syria. And I want you to see how many things have not changed one damn bit. And then before you, because this is all the stuff you're going to be thinking, because you listen to the video, remember, this is three years ago. Then ask yourself where the media has been on this. I was one dude with an iPhone and a tripod. I was not jockeying for space. The media was not covering it. The American media is shameful. You want to talk about fake news, which I think we'll be talking about with a guest later, our surprise mystery guest, who I'm really excited about, by the way, because he's one of my favorite people. But our surprise mystery guest I'll be talking about, we'll talk to him about fake news. You want to talk about fake news, it's the American press's reporting on Syria. And I got to say this because I, I got a little heated in my periscope. I'm going to get a little heated now. Forgive me for caring about this, but people have died due to media malfeasance. People have died 
This Syrian conflict has gone on way too long because the American people have not been notified that we've been supporting the wrong side. And because of that, it's gone on. If the American people knew what was actually happening, if the American people knew that we were supporting the people fighting right alongside the jihadists, that there's no difference, which is what I found in 2013, if they knew that this Syrian conflict could have been ended months or years ago, because it's disgusting. And if they knew that Russia is on the right side of this, or at least, at very least, not as on the wrong side as we are. Again, look, I'm not saying we should go in and help Assad, which is what Russia is doing. You could make that argument, but Bashar al-Assad has problems with him. He's attacked Israel, for instance, not, a, not an ally of Israel in any way. But I think he can be dealt with better. Who do you, let me just ask you this. Who would you rather sit down and negotiate and cable with, Bashar al-Assad or ISIS? And by the way, if you said ISIS, I would like to urge you to go sit down and negotiate and cable with them. But just think about it. When you have murderous zealots who believe fully in their hearts that what they're doing is God's work, when that's what's going on, you can't negotiate with them. A guy like Assad, I think he wants to live. He's pretty much shown that. So if the American people knew what was going on in Syria, this could have been stopped long ago. And the reason the American people don't know about it is because of the media. And that's why I'm not going to do the ad again, but this is what really literally why I started citizen journalism school, because I realized the media ain't going to fix itself. They just aren't. So we need an army of citizen journalists and not citizen journalists talking about fake stories, spreading lies and rumors. We don't need that. I don't need it. You don't need it. Fake news is real and people spreading fake stories and Pizzagate is fake news. And anybody who's supporting Pizzagate and who's complaining about fake news, shut your mouth. Shut it. Zip it. Shut your pie hole. Clam up. You have no right. If you're spreading Pizzagate, you have no right to open your stupid mouth about fake news because you're spreading it. I'm not a hypocrite on these things. And John Cardillo and I, John brought it up. Cardillo brought it up on making the news earlier. We may get into it today. We may not. But, okay, what I'm going to do for you now is I'm going to play what I said in Aleppo three years ago. And, again, this is reporting that the media simply wasn't doing. Here's me talking about Aleppo from Beirut. You'll hear that. This is Lee Stranahan reporting from Beirut, Lebanon. Another important city to understand in Syria that's been a battleground is Aleppo in northern Syria near the Turkish border. Now, Aleppo is important because it used to be an industrial city. In fact, it had sort of become a very, very nice place to live. I've interviewed a number of people who were from Aleppo. And uh, they said it was great, beautiful, had restaurants, shops. And it was a target for the U.S.-backed rebels, the Free Syria Army, al-Nusra, and the other loose coalition of rebels have basically taken over Aleppo. And with al-Nusra, but even with the Free Syria Army, who we back and call the moderates, they want to establish an Islamist state. 
And what they've done in Aleppo is effectively have done that. They've taken over the city. The government controls a small area in the center. But any supplies that get in, uh, any food that gets in, the rebels take, steal for themselves. It's very hard. People have told me to get even just bread there is very, very expensive, very, very hard to, to get. One person I interviewed, it was very clear, they said Aleppo is hell. And these people really love the city uh, a lot, but it's been essentially destroyed. Now, one of the reasons is because the groups like al-Nusra and ISIS, which, is, which stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, they have made a stronghold there where they're basically in Aleppo. They want to set it up as a state within a state, practicing Muslim Sharia law. And so while some of that is going on, the rest of it, the people we're backing, the moderates, the Free Syria Army, they're just criminals. They're just people who, for instance, kidnap people. I talked to someone whose brother was kidnapped and held for a long period of time, and they had to pay $40,000 to get his brother released. So Aleppo is one of those areas in Syria, as you look at what the U.S. has been involved in the conflict, and whose side we've taken. Again, I, I, I'm not pro-Assad, but sometimes there are things worse uh, than just toppling a dictator. And I think that's what's happening there right now. The town has been nearly decimated, emptied of people. Almost all the Christians have fled. And uh, it's a very, very bad situation. For more on Aleppo, go to LeeStreamHand.com. Until next time on LeeStreamHand. So there it was. That's three years ago. So what's happened is the city from called Aleppo has been under siege by Islamists for years. The U.S. was supporting the people who took over the city. And now there's been this fierce battle to kick them out. The city was already destroyed three years ago. I showed pictures of it three years ago. It's worse now. But where was the U.S.? Where was the United States and where was the media when the Islamist jihadists, the people shouting Allah Akbar, where were they reporting on what they did to Aleppo three years ago? Where were they? It's shameful. It's absolutely shameful. I have more I'm going to play from my uh, trip to Beirut later in the show. But I got to say, when I see when I when I see the media coverage, it reminds me of what Andrew Breitbart used to say all the time. And look, let me let me drift off into another topic here related to this, though. And this is something I'm going to talk to John about when when he gets on. We talked about it a little bit on the on the podcast, making the news podcast, which again you can find on iTunes. Just do a search for making the news, and. One of the most shameful aspects of the media right now is that no one is stepping up to actually combat the media on their own turf. The conservative media, as well as Donald Trump did in this election, the fact that the conservative media is still acting cowed, is still acting afraid to set the agenda, is shameful. You're listening to Radio Straight Hand. Coming up right after this break, it's 28 minutes past the hour. We'll have John Cardillo. We'll be talking about the way the media treats things, the way the right-wing media can improve, 
and a whole lot more. I'm just looking for the right thing to play here. That's not the right thing. You listen to Radio Stranahan. Uh, Lee Stranahan, Braveheart investigative reporter who is, well, just knows everything. Radio Stranahan, it's all good. That was a great Red Sox pitcher, Kurt Schilling, saying that I know everything. It's hard to argue with Kurt when he says something like that. Joining me on the line right now, John Cardillo, johncardillo.com, and conservative radio talk show host, who you can listen to Monday through Friday. What are you, seven, you're 7 to 10, right, John? I'm going to be changing that. I'm going to be moving markets, Lee. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so right uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be announcing that we're going to be expanding out uh, with more stations and changing markets and possibly times. That's great. Okay, so so but you, how do you, by, by the way, how do you like doing the morning? You've been doing the morning thing for a while. How do you like doing that shift? I don't mind that. I mean, it's early mornings, right? Getting up early, but once you're in the groove, it it, uh, it becomes pretty easy. I like it. You know, it frees up your day to do research for the next day's show. So, uh, I've gotten I've gotten used to it. But afternoon drive is interesting to me as well. So I'm toying with possibly moving to that slot. Oh, really? That's that's that's, that's interesting. Well, everybody, John Cardillo is uh, he's like I say, he was the guest this week on Making the News. We had a great conversation there on the podcast, but John's one of my favorite people to go to, especially for issues related to the police. But just for anything in politics, John is a, a super knowledgeable guy, and it's great to have you on the show. So I want to talk Hi. about about fake media. We're going to have – one second, my lovely assistant Shane has vanished. I think we're also going to – I think I can announce it now. After John, by the way, we're going to have the great David Horowitz, author. David Horowitz will be on, and we'll be talking about – fake news as well. But, John, I, I was talking a little about this, and, of course, you've seen what's happening in Turkey right now with the Russian ambassador being shot by a guy shouting Alua Akbar. And I got to say, if you're in the – if you're just a regular liberal <laughs> and you're just watching the news, this, is, this might be a shock to you. Like, what's going on over there? Why is an Islamist killing this guy? And they just don't know what's going on. So – We've seen, you know, we talked about this. You you deal with police issues a lot. How bad? Just be blunt, John. <laughs> How bad is the media right now? Are we crying wolf too much? Are we complaining about fake news too much, or is it is it really as bad as people on the right like to make it out? Oh no, I think it's worse. I, I think we've we've uh, downplayed just how bad it is, right? I mean, we've got we've got narratives being created. You and I spoke about it yesterday a little bit. We've got narratives being created, starting with hands up, don't shoot. You had celebrities, professional athletes, professional sports, teams, teams, full teams, but with the, with the uh, uh, implied consent of the National Football League and Commissioner Goodell uh, uh, perpetrating, promoting the hands up, don't shoot lie, a lie that the Department of Justice debunked that's still used today by the mainstream media. And we're, talk, of course, talking about Ferguson, Mike Brown's hands up, and then he was shot, begging, don't shoot, my hands are up. That lie was, was not just, was not just uh, egregious. It was promoted. It was fostered. It was cultivated by CNN, by the Washington Post, by the New York Times, by the elite of the elite in the media world. There's that, there's that photo we all like to retweet of the Sally Khan and the CNN hosts holding their hands up and one holding an I can't breathe sign. So I think it's worse. I think we've seen two years 
of of radicalism, of public unrest, of of violence, of riots, of looting, of, of businesses being destroyed because of fake news. It's it's far worse. And I think the dollar toll is in the hundreds of millions, if not billions, collectively, because of the damage done. Well, and you know, you bring up an interesting point with the sports teams because here's what happens. And again, this is something we talked about in the podcast a little bit as well. But when we talk about the institutional left, uh, and when we talk about the the liberals' control of media, it's important to understand how this stuff recycles. So the news repeats this lie about hands up, don't shoot over and over again. Then what happens is it trickles down into culture, right? So now college students are hearing about it, right? And their professors, who are part, part of the left, teach about it and promote them protesting about it. Now that turns into the college football players who are going to college, right? Cause they're college football players. They hear this stuff. So then they do a protest or then the pro players hear what the college players did. Then they do a protest. Now what they've done is if a team like, so for instance, when the, when the university of Missouri football team decided to go on strike, about white supremacy. Now, That's a news event. Decided, yeah, it's ridiculous, though. College teams, you know, entitled college athletes going on strike because of, of fake news. I mean, it's just rich, isn't it? Especially these kids who got scholarships to play ball, who what? have a free ride, all of a sudden have decided to make a, a stand, you know, against the establishment. But the thing is, the sad thing is it worked because the school buckled, if you remember on that story, within like 24 hours or something. I mean, they had been protesting for a few weeks, but once the football players said, hey, we're done, the school administration immediately buckled. The guy resigned, the chancellor or the dean. I mean, they, they lost both. So I think it was the chancellor and the dean both resigned right. within, I think, 20, 24, 48 hours. So you're right. It's a disgusting technique, and it's a laugh, except it worked. So It worked, and, you know, and, and I, Melissa Click. The, the radical professor had a job until she faced criminal charges, right? And isn't it crazy that the, the administrators who had nothing to do with anything had to resign, but the, the radical teacher out there violently hitting people was only let go once she was charged criminally. And which took months, which took, which which took, took months, months or, yeah. yeah, which took months, even though it was on video, everyone saw the video of her going up, threatening the student. And I interviewed that student when I went out to the university of Missouri, uh, I interviewed that student. I sat down to dinner with him for a, a couple hours, and it was just what you saw. There was no deceptive editing. He went out to cover it, and she was immediately threatening him. And he's a student there. Let, uh, let's Again, he's not like a mean Breitbart reporter or a, a vicious you know, conservative pig like John Cardillo. No, no, this is a student uh, at the school. That's what they did, and it took, it, like you say, it took months. But now the thing I touched on a little bit – before you came on was that so we know the mainstream media is bad agreed how's conservative media give me a report cutting conservative media well i'll tell you it's interesting right because i thought we were better but uh i'm i'm getting pushback i won't name the outlets but i've done some pretty hard-hitting stories lately uh with regards to my my issues and i was a vehement trump supporter pretty much from day one one of the things I don't like is what I perceive to be the hijacking, the RNC, Reince Priebus and his machine, hijacking 
the administration. And I won't get too deep into the nuances, but there are a lot of RNC staffers who were who were never Trump, who are firm establishment, open borders, and and globalism all the way, who are being brought into the fold into the inner circle in Trump Tower. So I wrote a piece about it, naming a couple of people, one of them being Katie Walsh, the chief of staff of the RNC, who aligned with never Trumpers and, and was uh, was sitting on uh, leases of offices for the Trump campaign. At the time, Trump was being vilified in the media for having a poor ground game, and I had four different outlets turn me down and say, well, we know this is true, but it's going to ruffle some feathers, and we can't go there. So I, th- I think both sides right now are more concerned with being popular. The left is far worse, but even on the right, they're concerned with being popular and part of a clique more so than they are with getting uh, out information about what's really happening, whether it be in a new administration, whether it be in the Black Lives Matter movement. I think, but for a few, Breitbart has been pretty fearless. My show, I, I own my show and soon I own the, some of the stations I'm on, so I couldn't care less. I'll, I'll broadcast what I want until the SEC tells me I've gone too far. But uh, I don't. I think many on the on the right are starting to fall victim to this uh, mild, milder form of political correctness. Well, let, let's report as long as we don't ruffle too many feathers of the people we perceive to be our friends, and that's really not what journalism is supposed to be about. Well, and you say that, I mean, even during the election, obviously, we saw that sites like Breitbart were pretty much standing alone among uh, mainstream conservative news sites. I'll leave InfoWars sort of at the edge of that list of main sites. But I will say that I question (laughs) – Alex Jones reports stories that aren't accurate sometimes, and he definitely goes for the click sometimes. That being said, yeah. and I could, I could say a lot more about that. I, like, for instance, just a simple example, a non-controversial example. I was personally bothered and disgusted by the way they handled Andrew Breitbart's death. They were reporting things that were simply not true, right. such as the, the coroner, such as he may have been murdered. Andrew Breitbart wasn't murdered. You know this, John. If I thought Andrew Breitbart was murdered – it would be the only story I covered. Right? You know, I would Lee, drop everything. Exactly. Yes, yes, and and you're right. You respected him. He was a friend of yours, and I had a, I have a lot of friends in the LAPD. And and when 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 Andrew Breitbart passed, I spoke to them. And because before any news came out, I said, "Hey, was this foul play?" I didn't know if it was it was a crazed leftist who might have shot the guy. This before any news came out, and one of them called me back, and he said, "No, sadly." You know, a bad diet and stress killed a guy. Uh, you know, we spoke to the coroner's office. He had the body, the heart of a 75-year-old man. I mean, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it was natural causes. It was just natural causes, and, and maybe it was genetic. It was very sad. He was a young guy in his 40s. But the conspiracy theories drove me nuts. And, and the reason that I, I don't, as a rule, I won't retweet Infowars, and with a caveat, despite the fact that, that Paul Joseph Watson has been doing a very good job and disseminating some info, I don't retweet InfoWars. They lost me forever when they claimed that 9-11 and Sandy Hook, uh, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, were hoaxes. I know state troopers, career guys who are in that school who watched to look at the bodies of those dead children. I was I friends I, I lost in 9-11. Uh, I, I think Alex Jones, he discredited himself to me forever, but he does have some good people on his team. I, I don't, as a, as a rule, though, help promote that site because he does go off the deep end with 9-11, Sandy Hook, uh, Andrew's death, etc. Well, yeah, and this, look, the Sandy Hook one, you brought up one that really bugs me as well because uh, I don't even know what people are thinking on, on that one. I mean, I, I, I know what they're thinking, but I guess what I'm saying is 
uh, unless that's a slam dunk, people don't seem to consider, gee, what if you're wrong? I mean, there was just a case exactly. recently where one of the parents was being harassed. She had a filed yeah, – one of the parents, was a, parents had a filed yeah, charge. Yeah, they, yeah, they called her a crisis actor, right, and they were harassing – the, the whole conspiracy there, not, not to beat a dead horse in this interview, is that there were a video of men running through the woods in camouflage. So, of course, the, of course the conspiracy there is think there's some paramilitary false flag unit. It was hunting season in Connecticut. I grew up in New York. I think you grew up in New England. Connecticut is a big deer hunting state. Uh, upstate, you know, it's not yep. uncommon to drive through Connecticut and see guys in pickups in their camo, their mossy oak, picking their kids up at school. It was such nonsense and shame on the people that ran with that. And I trained. I did a training at the Connecticut uh, State Police Academy some years back on cybercrime, and two of the troopers I trained had responded, guys I stayed in touch with. It was horrific and a horrific crime scene. And what has been done to those parents is disgraceful. Yeah, no, it is. And, and the, the, you know, and I'll, I'll take that as the example, but with any of these stories, I, the thing I keep coming back to is like the truth is bad enough. In other words, the truth of what happened yes. there is there was a horrible mass shooting, and then the left immediately turned it around to try to ban guns. And right. Politicalization of that, and by the way, look. If you're going to be, if you're going to call for a gun ban after a tragedy like that, that does make some sense. In other words, it's the that's that's I guess the time to do it. To go look, if this guy didn't have access to guns, this never would have happened. You 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 do that right. scenario. Yeah, but, smart political strategy, right? If you're on that side of the aisle, that that was smart political strategy. I'll agree with you there. No, right, right. In, in the same way that if you're worried about uh, the Islamization of America after an Islamic terrorist attack, is the right time to press yes. that case. That's that's my whole and point. Like, and we There's do it. Tragi- and I, I, I right. do that, and you do that, and I, I admit I do that. I'm guilty of that because it's smart messaging strategy. Yeah, and and I think here's the other thing. In a case like Sandy Hook or some of these other mass shootings, I do think we need to look at and try to figure out is there a way to pre- prevent this? And if people want to put banning guns on that list and we want to go over the pros and cons, I'm fine. Let's have that argument. Let's have that debate. But let's put other let stuff. Me throw, let me throw on... uh, your audience. Let's cut you off, Lee. I'm sorry. But, but a quick, a quick uh, fact about Sandy Hook they won't know. So Lanza's – there were laws in place to prevent that. Well, they know this part. The second part they won't because it never made the media. There were laws in place to prevent Sandy Hook straw purchase laws. Lanza's mother purchased firearms for him because he himself couldn't buy them. So it, it, she, she unfortunately was killed by him, but she engaged in a felony straw purchase. It, Connecticut didn't allow her to gift the firearms to states like Florida do, so laws were broken there. So the gun laws it, already on the books simply didn't work. Now, the part of the story, because I spoke to him, that never uh, made the media is, is, is Lanza's uncle, the mom's brother – was a cop in New Hampshire. He was en route to Connecticut to take the guns out of the house. He just didn't make it in time because the family felt Lonzo was going to snap. I spoke to the uncle. I coincidentally knew him through a police organization. I didn't know him. We were in the same police organization together, and he reached out to me, and he said, I live with this every day. I was an hour away. If had I left the house an hour earlier, 20 kids might be alive. And so the laws, the laws simply that were in place didn't work, and the family did try to intervene. It was just a horrible tragedy. Yeah, that's that's an amazing. I had not heard that detail, 
and I've looked into that story a bit, but I've not heard that detail. That is amazing. That is it was never really amazing. And I, I, had a, I had a private conversation with him. I've spoken about it on my – he was fine with me speaking about it. I spoke about it on my show, and I think yours, your show now is the second time I've ever spoken about it. Well, I think the other thing – so that brings up the good point. In other words, uh, what, what I'm saying is if we want to talk about how to prevent things, if people want to say guns, okay, great, that's, that's fine. But you feel free to have that discussion. But let's also talk to that guy and say, okay, you were worried. What were the warning signs people should look for? What, did, what were you seeing that made you nervous? Right. Does that make sense? In other words, but, but what happens is the, the left's narrative drowns out everything else. So we never get to have a chance to talk about, hey, here's what we were concerned about. Hey, here's what you should do in that situation if you think somebody well, about to snap. It's, Right. It goes back to the whole, you know, the, the cliche. The government tells us after 9-11 and, and locally now, cities like New York, L.A., Vegas, Miami, right down here in South Florida, if you see something, say something. But if you dare see a Muslim couple packing strange boxes into their garage that have vests and bags of fertilizer and you say something, you're a xenophobic racist who hates Muslims and you're a Donald Trumper who wants to rid the country of everybody that doesn't look like you. And so if they're not white men, then you're a suspect of them. So if you do see something and say something, you're branded as xenophobic racist. And so they, they speak out of both sides of their mouths, right? When, and we know from San Bernardino, neighbors saw something they were suspicious of, but because it was liberal California, they didn't say something, and 14 Americans are dead. That's exactly right. We're talking to John Cardillo, johncardillo.com, radio host, and also on Twitter at John Cardillo. We'll be right back with more with John right after this. Listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number to call in if you want to be part of this show, 619-924-0786. That number again, and I'll say it's lower. 619-924-0786. So, John, you, you brought up an interesting point. We're, we're talking about fake news and the effects of that. When you see the coverage, I'll, I'm going to make the case here that one of the biggest fake news stories that is being spread right now is the story about fake news. In other words, <laughs> the, 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 the left is defined. It's ironic, isn't it? The left is defining fake news as something the right does. That's the way they're defining it. Correct. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you tell a story about, look, when I, I was accused of it today, you know, you and I spoke yesterday, I broke out the black on black crime stats from the FBI's 2015 UCR, which were just released two months ago. And I was, I was, the only response to me on Twitter was hashtag fake news. The FBI is apparently fake news. I, I did a TV hit on HLN when I, when I, about a week ago, when I used the FBI data reconciled with U.S. Census data, a liberal, uh, another guest, a liberal in, in the talking head box, a liberal screamed over me and told me, and all she kept saying was fake news. There's other data that refutes that. And I asked her, well, where is this alternate universe FBI and census bureau? And then she started screaming fake news again. And so it's just anything that doesn't support their left wing talking points now becomes fake news. And, uh, and again, I'm seeing this on the right as well, unfortunately, where, you know, I, I have a real, I have a real strict standard which is fake news is news that's not real. That's my standard. And I don't care what I, what I always say. You know, if I see somebody robbing a bank, they're running out of the bank into the getaway car with a pile full of money and a gun. I don't look at the right. bumper sticker on the back of their car 
before I determine whether I think that's good or bad. I, if, I don't go, well, I don't know. They're robbing a bank, but they're a Trump supporter, so I don't want to say anything because it might make Trump supporters look bad. I report that because it's a bank robbery. If the guy's got a Hillary sticker, I do the same thing. And so when it comes to news stories, I don't care what your political affiliation is. I don't care who you voted for. Things are either true or not true. Uh, right. That seems to be lost now. That seems to be lost. So at, what do you tell people? Because this is a big question I get all the time. I have my own answer, but I, I'm curious to see what you say about this. If people say to you, I'm trying to get the truth. I don't want the BS from either side. I just want the truth. Where do you tell, what do you tell them to do? How do you tell people to deal with that? Because it's a real problem. I think for consumers, you know, right now. well, I'm, I'm fortunate as are you, because we're, we're people out there in the media we have, we have a presence, we have a bit of a voice. So I tell them, look, go to my site. And on my site, I populate the sources that I find the most reputable, but my site's pretty limited. I, I populate Breitbart and certain people within Breitbart. You're one of them. Uh, you, Alex Sawyer, Matt Boyle, a couple of others, Joel Pollack. I populate IJ. Uh, independent journal. I populate conservative review, Michelle Malk and Daniel Horowitz, because, uh, you know, I found, uh, well, again, I'm fortunate that I got to know these people personally, right? We've got to become friends with, with some. I know some other uh, others professionally. I know their integrity, and I know the sources they're using. I know what they're reporting is accurate. And so I'm in a position, as are you, Lee, to say, okay, I can give you 10 sources that you need to go to every day to get the truth, but not everybody has that access. And so we can only reach so many Many Americans, especially with a generational gap, still believe that ABC, CBS, and NBC Evening News are giving them the, the, the unbiased, unvarnished truth, and that nothing is further from the truth, right? There's always an editorial, a production, left-leaning slant on that. And so I think until we, we, we cultivate the next generation of people who consume their news online and consume their news from less traditional sources, we're going to keep running into this problem. Now you're you're in a unique position to answer this one too because you're not just you're a you're a pundit you're a host you're a journalist but you've mentioned your your company Chatter Media you're you're buying stations you're about to you have a, a right. radio stations that you're going to be owning so you're in a position of also owning you know being in a position of co you know owning the platform so let me ask you this I look at the news media there was a report the other night on CNN that the the mainstream media has an approval rating of 10%. Okay? Now think about any industry, the auto industry. If the auto industry, if 10% of the public said, I think cars are good, there would be a problem, and they would have to immediately change things because they don't want to go out of business. I don't Everybody see the mainstream media. <laughs> yeah. I'm right, right. Everybody Produ- would be fired. Production right, would right. shut and, down. But, uh, the assembly lines would grind to a halt, and everyone would be fired until a top-down review could be done. So you see where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah. Oh, they, yeah. Know, they, they know that the, the public hates them. They know that they're doing a bad job according to their public, right? And yet they don't change anything. They give Van Jones a show. How do you explain yep. the way the big media is making – forget their idea, just a business decision. How are they making their well, business it, it, decisions? Through the lenses, through the lens of the left. I mean, look at this girl Julia Ayafe. I think I'm saying her name correctly. Put out a disgusting tweet claiming that Donald Trump and his daughter have incestuous sexual relations. She's booted out of I forget who she worked for, Politico or one of the one of the left leaning sites, and she's given her own television show. 
like the next day. I think it was either on CNN or MSNBC or somewhere. And so the more radically, uh, disgracefully uh, left you can be, the more vitriolic you are toward conservatives, it seems the, more, the, the better a job you get in the traditional mainstream media outlets. Now, I'm, I'm always very honest. Your opinion, we're not news. And so my stations are going to be unabashedly conservative, but with a, with a higher end of, of on, on-air talent, right? We're going to have integrity as well. So we're never going to paint the left in a good light, but we're not going to feed you nonsense to sway you to our point of view. Because like you said, the truth, when you tell the truth about the policies of the left, it's damning enough. We don't need to make things up. Well, and that's a point that, that's a point that I think you know, Andrew used to talk about all the time. Um, Andrew used to say he likes the, 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 what they have in the British system, which is basically if you're in England, you know that The Guardian is liberal, and you know that The Daily Mail's conservative, right? They don't hide it. They don't try to pretend, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're everything for everybody. We're the newspaper That's of right. record, yeah. right? And the fact is I can read The Guardian. I do read The Guardian. Because I want to see what that perspective is. I want to see what, how they report on something. And I can read the Daily Mail. And so, uh, you know, that's the system that I think worked. And so I always like that approach. I do think that the approach Breitbart has, for instance, we're just upfront about who we are. Now, yeah. you know, let's, let's, let's just cap this. I appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for coming on. Let's sure. cap this with the, with the way the mainstream media treated Steve Bannon. Let's talk about that. What's your, why, why do you think... There was all the vitriol against Breitbart, former Breitbart chairman Steve Bannon, now the head of strategy for the Trump White House when he comes into power. Well, you know, knowing, knowing, having, having uh, dealt uh, on the ancillary, you know, Steve's ancillary with his with his key team members, they're terrified of of a successful business person who's also a brilliant strategist. And look, one thing people learn about me, I'm not a sycophant. I'm not saying this about Steve Bannon because I have friends at Breitbart. I consider Breitbart an ally outlet. I supported Trump. The guy is brilliant. The guy has made business moves that other people never saw coming, and they've paid off handsomely for him, both in terms of his career and his, and his financial bottom line. He's a brilliant strategist, and he terrifies the left because he breaks every single rule that they arbitrarily set. Right? I mean, the left-wing media are the ones who set the rules about, for example, if you call a press conference, you can't fool us. Well, Donald Trump made them look like morons you know, with Steve Bannon's help. Let's bring all of Bill let, – let's, let's tell them we're going on air to apologize about the Billy Bush tape and then trade out Bill Clinton's sexual assault victims. So, so Bannon has realized that these rules, these boundaries are simply arbitrary and visible lines. He's decided to break every one. They've thrown the mainstream media on its head. You and I were talking about it yesterday. They're completely stunned. They don't know how to react. So all they have left, like petulant two-year-olds, is screaming and yelling that mommy and daddy are terrible and they hate them. And that's why all this vitriol is directed at Bannon. It's because he beat them at their own game. Yeah, and it really is just amazing. When I see, when I see that Karl Rove is a commentator, right, and they, treat, they treat Karl yeah. Rove like, oh, he's, he's a brilliant strategist, yeah. So, John, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time today. I want to – I wanted to have you on also because I wanted people to – I wanted to highlight the fact people should really listen. to The episode that we did yesterday is about an hour long, yeah. and it's, it's really great. It's all killer, no filler, excellent stuff on the Real, uh, Making good, the News really podcast stuff, yesterday. Right? But everything you turn out has been, has been awesome, so I appreciate you inviting me on. It's, it's, I, I love reading. Your, I always wait for your next piece. Love reading it.
Yeah, you bet. I'm a fan of yours as well. John Cardillo, everybody, the great John Cardillo. Check him out at johncardillo.com. Also, check him out on Twitter as well. We have David Horowitz coming up just shortly here. Meantime, you're listening to Radio Stranahan. Bringing the truth to all 50 states. Yeah, even Massachusetts. Radio Stranahan. One of the reasons I wanted to have uh, David Horowitz on today is since we're talking about the fake news, and particularly we're talking about the fake news as it relates to this attack on the assassination, really, there's no, there's no better word for it, this assassination of the Russian ambassador to Turkey after he shot to death at a photo exhibit in Ankara. It's caught on video. The video is amazing. Uh, just because it's it's rare you see steady, well-lit footage of an assassination. And the guy's shouting Alu Akbar, and he's shouting about this is revenge for Syria and, and Aleppo. And talking about how the fake news reporting for years and years now on the mainstream media has affected things. Let me play you one other thing. I was talking earlier in the show about the reporting I did from Beirut in 2013, I played, I played what I had to say about Aleppo. Here's what I had to say more about the whole Syria situation. Let's play this before we, before we get to the top of the hour break here. This is Lee Stranahan reporting from Beirut, Lebanon. And I'd like to ask a real basic question now, one you might be asking yourself if you're an American, which is who cares? Why do I care about what's going on in Syria, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Turkey, uh, how does this affect me? Most Americans, myself included, weren't really paying any attention to what was going on in Syria until President Obama started talking about shooting missiles into it. And now that it doesn't seem like he's going to do that, can we just all go back to, you know, watching football and trying to figure out what Miley Cyrus is going to do next? And I think there's two reasons that this is a really important issue for Americans. Number one, there is a crisis going on with Christians being religiously cleansed in the Middle East. We've seen this happen in Iraq because of the Iraq War. We've seen this happen in Egypt because of the Arab Spring, where the Coptic Christians have been killed and driven from Egypt. We've seen this happen now in Syria. And we've seen it even happen in places like uh, Libya. So this is a real problem. The Pope has talked about it. The religious leaders I've interviewed here have talked about it. It's a real crisis. That's one reason. If you're a Christian, uh, or even if you just care about the influence of Christians in the Middle East, you should care about it because it's a destabilizing thing that's happening trying to cleanse the Christians. But the second reason is that there's a gigantic humanitarian crisis that isn't looming. I, I was going to say it's looming, but it's here right now, actually. As I mentioned in another video, over a million Syrians have left Syria and come into Lebanon, a city of four and a half million. A city that can't really afford, you know, a state, a country of four and a half million, forgive me. They can't really afford it. And almost equal numbers have gone into Jordan and Turkey. Now, Europe has taken on some refugees. They're bragging about taking on 5,000 in England, for instance. But people are fleeing Syria at the rate of 10,000 a day, they're saying. Because these countries can't really afford to do this, this is going to be an issue that comes back on the West very soon. Something's going to have to happen. 
And that's what I said in 2013. That was three years ago. And ask yourself, how much has changed? Have we learned anything? I was pointing out three years ago, because it was obvious, it was not hard to go to Beirut and see what was going on. It was not hard to talk to people in the streets, Christians and Muslims, and Druze, by the way. Never, no one ever mentions the Druze. But it was not hard to talk to Christians and Muslims and figure out what was going on there and all the problems that we were having. But the media didn't cover it. So as John and I talked about, John Cardillo and I talked about this past hour, this is fake news. Now what we're seeing in a situation where the Russian ambassador has been shot and killed, in a situation where Russia has been demonized for weeks and weeks and weeks now, by the way, by people who never demonized Russia when they were communist, by media outlets who had nothing negative to say about Russia when they were communist. I'll just point that out. That's sick little irony there. But the cold-blooded murder of the Russian ambassador by someone who shouts Alua Akbar is exposed who's on what side in Syria. The Russians have been fighting the jihadists. The U.S. should have been fighting the jihadists the whole time. If you want to call in and talk about it, 619-924-0786. We have a guest coming up, so it's going to be a little tricky to get to it. But joining me right now, one of my favorite people in the world, the great author David Horowitz. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty pretty good. Yeah, I, th- I really appreciate you taking the time, especially at the last minute. We we lost a guest due to this assassination in Turkey, and uh, uh, which is obviously well, I hope it was shaken. Erdogan. Did they kill Erdogan? No, <laughs> no, that no, no, that would have been. That would have been an assassination a lot of people could get behind. But no, no, very, very politically incorrect of you, David. I know that's shocking to some people. But I wanted to have David on because uh, obviously uh, David's the, the publisher of Front Page, the great front page, uh, also Truth Revolt, um, and has written how – many, how many books? Do you, I can't even keep track. You sent me a big I box of them. I can't keep track. <laughs> so a dozen? A dozen books? Oh, way more than that. I I have way a series, The Black Book of the American Left, which is going to be nine volumes. It's already seven. And right, actually, yes. yeah, on, no, my, I, on my website at frontpagemag.com, there's a video of me talking about it today. How the, how you the know, and, Democratic Party became a left-wing party. Great tragedy well, and for you the know, country. No, it, it is. So let, let's let's talk about some of that. You know, one thing I read, and you uh, you you jumped in to correct me. They were talking about how Hillary's vote count total, where she won the popular vote, basically is all due to California. In other words, oh, or two, well, whoa, 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 or two boroughs in New York. She got eighty percent of the vote in New York City, and I I think that uh, Brooklyn and Queens will do it. But certainly Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan is her margin. Right. Yeah, no. And, and we, we, I saw that in California. Yeah, no, these, instance, are, these are cities that have been addicted to government, um, you know, their welfare states. O'Reilly's been actually good on this. But um, by creating this dependent population, you 
create a secure democratic uh, voting base. Very simple. And there are cities that, well, in the cities you live, you you you've, you've spent time in both of those uh, places, um, and so you know culturally you've seen what happens. So is there like when I when I saw that the California Republican Party didn't even have a, a senator running, you pointed it out to me on exist. Twitter, we don't have a state. The California Republican Party barely exists. It just, it just does. So, it is not, not one statewide office. Is there any poss- Is there any hope there? Like, what's going on? <laughs> like, what? No. How does that happen? The California well, can't have a function. There's hope because of because of Trump. I mean, Republicans are brain dead. I think everybody um, who's sentient understands that. Uh, so. Republicans in the state have, have – uh, we don't really have a party. I think we have 18 well, congressional seats out of 50-some-odd. But I gave up on the California Republican Party a long time ago. And apparently so did uh, California. So you're in good yeah. company. Now, yeah. now you know, one of the – It's the actually bad company talking. because our taxes are so high, 13%. I, State, state income well, taxes. Well, in addition to yeah, in addition to all of the other fees, it's it's a complete tragedy to me too because I do love California, and my father was a native. My father is from California, and I do love California. And every time I go back, I'm like, well, it's really beautiful, and I like the weather, and a lot of uh, there's a there's an energy to it, uh, obviously, that's that's magical almost, but then they're just destroying the the, the state, and I just don't they see anything. Destroyed. I just don't see anything moving to to change it. I don't like it's so it's so sad to me. That's why I almost hope a guy like Peter Thiel, for instance, could step up and and do something. I think you can't run and re- I think a, well, a I, I'll tell you what I think the hope is. I think that that. <clears throat> That Trump will change the nature of the Republican Party, so it's much more open to, shall we say, modern trends. I mean, I see the Republicans in North Carolina are getting ready to repeal a stupid bathroom law. Um, I never understood how uh, um, a half halfway intelligent person could support a law which can only be enforced if you examine people's genitals as they... <laughs> Enter a bathroom. You have a policeman stationed at the bathroom door, and he looks to see what your genitals are, and then decides whether you can go in or not. Uh, yeah, well, that doesn't sound well, too, no, too I, American to me. Well, no, so I, I think that I, Trump will I, open up the Republican Party. Trump is friendly uh, to the LB, uh, LGBTQ community. Um, you know, he's open-minded. He was against the bathroom uh, stupidity to begin with. Uh, he's going to make a huge outreach to African Americans and Hispanics living in the inner cities, um, and uh, hopefully he'll marginalize the Democratic Party. Well, and how did how did you feel about the, you saw Trump's outreach to the tech community, where he brought in a bunch of tech people? Tim, Cook oh, I think everything Bezos he's been all. doing is great. Yeah. And his outreach to Kanye West too, and Ray Lewis. I'm not yeah. a big fan of Ray Lewis, but 
But uh, I think this is all all good. All good. I think yeah, the tech I... community is largely, I mean, their liberalism is, is social. And right, I, right. I, I think we can live in a country where you have conservative communities, which are not invaded by the liberals. Um, and then you have liberal communities, and that's fine. But Republicans yeah, have been don't... locked in. I mean, it's only Trump who's able to win the support of the evangelical community and at the same time say we have to defend the LGBTQ community against these terrorists. He's a, well, and that's, you know, a remarkable political figure, and I, I don't think people begin to realize what the potential is here. No, that's a great point. That's why, like, when Peter Thiel spoke, the uh, yeah, I've mentioned Peter Thiel, I mean, he people. had a gay, a gay keynote by a guy who's hugely successful and hugely intelligent. And, and when the tech community came to see him, yeah, and when the tech community came to see him, Peter Thiel was standing, uh, sitting next to him. And I love the fact that, that when he spoke at the RNC, Peter Thiel was applauded by the RNC. He was welcomed by them. And then that Trump got up and thanked the RNC, that... I'll tell you, I thought that was the the biggest moment to me. It was one of the biggest moments at the whole RNC. If you want an example of how the Republican Party was changed by Trump, that was it, where the yep. RNC applauded well, Peter Thiel. Yeah, and- absolutely. And that's the point. That's the point. Go for bigger things. Now, with government sort of enforcing morals, you know. Uh, I mean, right, right. Well, and it's just not going to. It's it's just like I say, in a place like California, there is a. I think there is a place to run the kind of candidate who can win in Republican, who can win as a Republican in California. Schwarzenegger run, but he's not. Any grand nominee. No, Arnold was all about Arnold, and that, that was the problem. Yeah. Electing yeah. Arnold was electing Arnold. It wasn't. It? Even though he was a yeah. Republican, in the end, he just wanted to be popular. Yeah, and and yeah, and, and there were a lot of problems with the, with the Schwarzenegger governance. But still, I, I got to say, with Jerry Brown in place now, uh, it, it it makes me wistful for the days of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, Brown is so bad um, and so left, and. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, too, about this uh, subject of fake news is well, because... Well, Brian has left because you, the teacher unions elected him. They gave him $30 million. They're, they're an incredible corrupting force in our culture. And they should be banned. Teacher unions should be outlawed, as all government unions should be. You can't have unions <clears throat> that uh, get to be uh, a, a political uh, slush fund to elect politicians, they'll give them whatever they ask for. Those are the employers. You know, if you feel you're unfairly treated, you could you could vote uh, the people who are unfairly treating you out. But there shouldn't be teacher unions, so there shouldn't be any government or what's called public sector unions. Even Franklin Roosevelt was against public sector unions. I was going to say that. Yeah, I was going to say even FDR was 
on the record clearly against for, for exactly the reasons you're saying, that there shouldn't be public sector unions. And when you look at what we call the institutional left, you can't extrapolate out SEIU or ACL, uh, AFL-CIO. They're, they're such an integral part of the institutional left. And as you say, it comes because they're able to get their money at the point of a gun. Well, well, I saw some just, people say that. It's not the whole AFL-CIO. It's AFSPE. It's the public sector yeah. unions that have to be abolished. Yeah. Yes, no, that, that's uh, right. Yeah, you yeah, know, and right. I think yeah. Trump, I mean, I, we haven't seen him in action yet because he hasn't been in office. But I hope he's as aggressive at going after the Democrats and their base as the Democrats have been in going after Republicans. Well, I think some of his cabinet appointments show that so far. He's putting in people who, you know, when you put a guy like Rick Perry up for his Department of Energy, who's called for the Department of Energy to be abolished, right? Um, And just over and over again, you know, these cabinet appointments, I think, show that he is pretty serious about uh, radical change at the government. But like you say, we haven't seen him in action yet. Now, I'm curious about this, too. What do you make of all of the, uh, I don't know how else to put it, but the anti-Russian rhetoric in the past couple weeks the Democrats have no principles and no brains. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> this is this is what they used to call McCarthyism of the worst water. Uh, we don't know that the Russians actually hacked. We have the the obviously the intelligence agencies politicized that they would do this kind of thing. Uh, you know, this should be a serious thing. If they think the Russians hacked, they should go before Congress and lay out the evidence. Um, but to accuse Trump of being a pawn of the Russians because he sarcastically said uh, he hoped that the Russians would turn over a thousand emails that Hillary deleted and should be in jail for deleting. It's called obstruction of justice. Um, you know, it's ridiculous. I, but I think the Democratic Party is, is in self-destruct mode at the present time. Uh, I, I can't believe the American people think it's okay after an election has been decided to try every means you can to delegitimize the elected government and try to overturn the result, which is what they've done by, you know, today is news by challenging the electors, even though the recounts. I mean, it's just, uh, and where are Hillary and Obama who should be defending the unions? We have a country that's very divided, so it's very important to have unity, you know, at least at the moment when a new president uh, gets in office. But uh, that's too much to ask for the Democrats. Well, and you talked about you have a, you have a book coming up talking about how the Democrats have been. Now, what's the, it's it's about how they just well, the, uh, the left okay. power. Call the left in power from Clinton to Obama, and it, it you know, the, actually, this is a process that started in 1968, when the late and unlamented Tom Hayden cynically went to Chicago to start a riot to destroy the Hubert Humphrey candidacy. For those who are too young to remember, Hubert Humphrey was a Democratic Party candidate, but he was a patriot and he supported the Vietnam War. And that's why they wanted to take him down. 
And the Democrats, the, the left, which hated America, Tom Hayden hated America, wanted to start guerrilla war in our cities against America to support the communists in Southeast Asia. Um, Tim Kaine was part of that, except he was supporting the communists in Central America. Uh, but the, the left then marched into the Democratic Party, um, formed these caucuses, the Black Caucus, which still exists, the Women's Caucus, Chicano Caucus, and took control of the legislative apparatus of the Democratic Party, then voted to pull the plug on our allies in Vietnam uh, and, and force America's withdrawal, which led to the deaths, the slaughter, really, of two and a half million Indo-Chinese peasants. Thank you, um, Nancy Pelosi and Howard Dean and um, all the Democrats, for that matter. Um, and, and But the big change came with the Iraq War, which was the Iraqi Liberation Act, which called for the removal of Saddam Hussein by any means necessary, was signed by Bill Clinton. It was a Bill Clinton act. And Clinton actually fired 450 cruise missiles into Iraq, something people forget, which was a sovereign country. That was an act of war. But Iraq had been violating the truce in the 1991 Gulf War. So we were really at war with Iraq. It's just nobody could get Iraq to obey the terms of the truce thing. Saddam Hussein was violating them. So the Democrats actually were shamed into supporting not the, not the congressional, not the House Democrats. They voted against the war, but the Senate Democrats and the Democratic Party leadership, including Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, supported the war. And three months into the war, while our young people they had sent for us into harm's way were on the firing line, um, they turned 180 degrees against the war. They lied, saying, one, that there were no weapons of mass destruction in the war, and two, that Bush had lied, which he couldn't have lied to snooker them into the war because the Democrats sit on the intelligence committees and have the same access to U.S. intelligence as the president did. Uh, and the head of the CIA was a Bill Clinton appointee, George Tenet. So the Democrats lied, stabbed our country in the back. It was just uh, it was five years of treason is what it was. And, and the treason was committed not only by the Democratic Party, but by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Every day, front page of the New York Times, body counts, American body bags, uh, you know, photographed. Um, Obama ran eight years of war in which more people, more Americans were killed in Afghanistan under Obama than under under Bush, but there were never... Where, where were those body bags on the front page in those stories? The Democrats tried to sabotage the war uh, and almost succeeded. That's when the Democratic Party went fully left. And they were forced well, to do it. Why, why did they turn against the war? It had nothing to do with the war. It had to do with the fact that Howard Dean, an anti-American radical for the 60s, was winning the Democratic primary as we... We invaded Iraq in, in March 2003. There was a Democratic primary. By June, 
uh, Dean was winning, I think it was over 40% of the vote. John Kerry and uh, John Edwards, his rivals, were down in the 10 to 15% level. And they just betrayed their country, turned against the war, um, said that Bush had lied, which he couldn't have, um, and uh, took the whole Democratic Party with them into the enemy camp. And, uh, you know, the tragedy is that Bush, Republicans don't, uh, they don't fight. So Bush did not say, you know, he didn't use his bully pulpit to say the Democrats were betraying the country and betraying our young people and getting them killed. And they were silent over that. And so what happened was the Democrats were able to portray the war as a bad war and their treason as patriotism. And that's the way it stands today. You know, it's the most important thing I disagree with Trump on when he said, I mean, he said that Bush lied. He didn't lie. And he was against the Iraq war. The Iraq war was a good war to fight, but it was sabotaged from the beginning. But I don't, I, I think that Trump's position is politically, there's sense to it. Because what he did was he took it off the table. Um, I mean, Democrats, although it's the Democrats that get us into the wars, Democrats, um run against the Republicans, accusing them of being warmongers. And Trump made that impossible. So he, he resonated to the mood that the cowardice of the Bush administration um, and the perfidy uh, of the Democrats had created, which is everybody thinks the Iraq war was a bad war. So that, that's it's where it all really happened. It's 23 minutes past the hour. We're talking to the author, David Horowitz. And uh, by the way, we have breaking news that in Berlin, nine people have been killed at least, and many injured when a truck slammed into a Christmas market. And uh, we'll keep an eye on that story because we know that. Yeah, who is driving seen... that truck? Yeah, we, I want to know who's driving too. Yeah, we look, we've, we've seen auto accidents that are mistakes, and then we've seen trucks being used as weapons. We've seen uh, nice jihadists thing. using. Yeah, right. yep. We, we, we've seen that many times, so we'll see that. But, and that's breaking the same day that the ambassador shot in Turkey, so it may or may not be a coincidence. Now, now David, you mentioned uh, uh, Who's what, what happened in Chicago. Shot? The, Ger- the German ambassador? The, uh, no, no, the Russian ambassador was shot in Ankara, Turkey, and killed. Whoa. It's on video. It's on that's video, big. and the guy shot at Alua Akbar, and he was... Uh, he so because it was on video, very clear video. The guy got in. He shot the Russian ambassador. He died, but he shouted, "This is for Syria. This is for Aleppo. You're killing us in Aleppo. This is what we do to you." And Alu Akbar. That's what he's shouting. So he's a jihadist. Um, uh, who who shot him? Yeah, it's a big. It's a it's a big deal. It's a it's a big deal. Who's not gonna, a jihadist in Syria? You tell me. No, that's that's right. Yeah. Now, now we, you talked about uh, what happened in Chicago '68. Where were you in Where were you in '68? Where were you in that when, when that I was, was going at, on? I was editing uh, a part of the team. I was a senior editor 
at Ramparts, the largest magazine of the left. And I, and most of the left, go to Chicago. There were only 3,000, you know, this, this was an era when you could have a demonstration with 100,000 people very easily. Only 3,000 people went because it was so cynical. Hayden wanted people to get killed is basically what he wanted. He wanted a riot. Uh, the Chicago police were notorious anyway um, for their uh, you know, brutality. And the idea was to provoke them to cracking heads and getting people hurt. Um, and, uh, and, and blowing up the Democratic Party candidacy, which is what he did. It made the, the convention was a zoo and people voted for Nixon. And it was a very cynical, deliberate attempt to destroy the patriotic wing of the Democratic Party. The, Hubert Humphrey was a socialist, but he was a, an American patriot. Um, and they successfully did destroy the patriotic wing of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party has been a party of very uncertain loyalties ever since. And so when you see the Democrats talking about putting someone like Keith Ellison in as head of the DNC. Well, that's perfect. And they think, you know, this is a hateful human being, a racist, anti-Semite, anti-American pro-Muslim Brotherhood, pro-Jihad. I'm I'm an agent. I mean, he's paid for by the Muslim Brotherhood. That's how he got to Mecca, crying out tears. And the Democratic Party and Schumer is supporting him, that they would even consider him. But it's nothing new. As in this book I wrote, uh, The Left in Power, uh, in the Clinton administration, they appointed Carlotta Scott as the political director of the Democratic Party. Claudia Scott was the mistress of the Marxist dictator of Grenada and had committed treason um, in her collaboration with this dictator, which is detailed in my book. And, and is, I was going to say it's well known. It's, it's well documented, not well known. It's well documented because when... Um, Marines, when Reagan sent the Marines into Grenada, they liberated the government files. So it's all in the government papers that were liberated. Well, anyway. Well, the, and when you, and you talk Very about before, you mentioned, you, you mentioned that, they, that, that Hayden and the others in the 60s, the other leaders of the 60s, they wanted a, a revolution in the streets. They wanted an armed overthrow. I just want to be clear to people, because I think a lot of times people today, if they don't know that history, if, if, they're, if they're younger, and I'm not young, I'm 51, I'm not young, but... You are uh, young, what yeah. are you talking about? Well, you, you even <laughs> tell that to my feet. But, uh, but, uh, it, but, uh, but even the people who are my age, I was born in 65, right? I didn't, I didn't really live, I was alive in that era, but I didn't live through it. They don't know when you say like an armed overthrow revolution, you mean that literally, right? Because I know you. Yeah, right. Hey, but I wrote a book. It's very hard to find this book because he suppressed it Uh, long after it was published when he was receiving the Medal of Freedom from uh, Clinton, Um, you know, when he became a legislator, a Democratic legislator in our state. That's when he was suppressing this book. It's called The Trial. 
And the whole last section, which is long of the trial, is a call to arm, to creating what he called liberated zones in America by guerrilla warfare. And Hayden, um, they had military training. I, I, in a, a book that Peter Collier and I wrote called Destructive Generation, I mean, we named their military trainer. <laughs> they were training for an armed revolution. And that's because they yeah. wanted the communists, the communists to win the war in Vietnam. That's what it was about. And, and in we fact, have a fifth, they were... a fifth column in this country. Now we have a fifth column for these Islamic terrorists. On our, every major college campus in America, there's a group called Students for Justice in Palestine, which is funded by Hamas terrorists, which carries out Hamas terrorist propaganda in behalf of a genocidal war, again, not only against uh, the Jews, but against Christians and heathens. Infidels, and it's on all our college campuses, and it's defended by their well, well, I can't say all, several hundred campuses, including every university, and it's defended by the presidents of the universities and funded by them. In addition to being funded by the terrorists, and supported supported actively by the left. I mean, one of the things, and I've I've reported yeah, on they've this. They've got the whole coalition is, of the campus leftist coalition. Of course, the Muslim Students Association, which is another, it's a Muslim Brotherhood front. Um, but uh, uh, the the left generally, the Black Student Unions, the Black Lives, well, Black Lives Matter officially supports the terrorists in Black Lives Matter yeah. is a fifth column. It's a racist fifth column in this country uh, and, uh, you know, invited to the White House when there's a Democrat in the White House. Well, and, and, and I, like I bring up, for instance, there's a, there's a uh, Muslim terrorist named Rezmiya Oday. And Oday is a, she killed people in Israel, period. And then she snuck into this country and she became a community organizer. And she is an absolute hero. I've written about her at Breitbart, but Rezmiya Oday you can see there's, she, does, she does appearances with people like Angela Y. Davis, Angela Davis, 60s oh, Angela radical Davis Angela Davis. Is a lifelong traitor for crying out to years and a murderer. That, yeah. It's sad what's happened to this see, country. And, and that these people are still around. I think the thing, the thing that's amazing is that they're, they're still around. I've, I've written about Eric Mann, who's part of the the weather underground. He was part of the, the when the when the weatherman yeah, was from the SBS. Famous in the sixties for punching out a high school principal when they had a the weather underground the weather was before the underground. The weatherman used to the weatherman, yeah. Charge into high schools and yell jailbreak. And these are disgusting people. But they're still they're part of the left. And they're and they're an acknowledged part of the left. And for instance, Eric Mann, who we we're just talking about, Eric Mann was the mentor to, um, among other people, Patrice Cullors from Black Lives Matter and Van Jones. I have an interview with Van Jones talking about how Eric, you know, with Eric Mann, again, this guy was part of the, the, the. When I say communist, I mean 
the the weathermen were avowedly Marxist Leninist communist. I mean, that's a Marxist. They were Maoist, but but they were avowedly well, look, communist. The weathermen wanted to start their goal. If you can read their interminable um, charter document, it's called "You Need You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows." Their goal was to start a race war. They were going to be the fifth column for the people of color all over the world who were at war with America. They, they were like the Charlie Mansons of, of the left. Because that, that was Charlie Manson. He, he didn't have as coherent an ideology as they did, but that was his agenda. Start a race war. And, and, they pre- and Bernadine Dorn, for instance, at the Flint War Council, praised Manson. Said, she, correct. Bernadine Dorn, Bill they, Ayers. They, they were basically insane. They had the same attitudes. Um, yeah, you know, Bernadine doesn't have the excuse that she was a demented schizophrenic or whatever the hell he is. Close. And again, and they're still around. Anybody who doesn't think they're, they're no, she's a around it in, in the Northwestern. That's right, and still very influential, and still the this new generation of Black Lives Matter activists, for instance, uh, Michelle Alexander, she wrote the book The New Jim Crow uh, about the prison industrial complex and and mass incarceration. Yeah, well, Michelle Alexander, this is the signature the signature commitments of leftists: support America's enemies abroad and support violent criminals at home. That's who they are. That's what they do. And her book is and yet, just and part I, of that movement. Well, and I pointed this out, for instance. So you talk about people like Asada Shakur, who Black Liberation Army, cop killer, convicted cop killer. I have never seen the media. Murderer. Yeah. Cold-blooded murderer. The cop was lying on the ground, and she executed him. And part of a group, the Black Liberation Army, that did nothing but kill police. The only thing that they did, they did not like give speeches or give, they didn't even pretend like, Oh, we're going to give breakfast to kids. They just killed cops. That's all the black liberation. I know, but they, they weren't supported by a hundred million dollars of leftist liberal progressive money, like black lives matter. And they weren't invited to the white house. Things are much, much worse um, in terms but, of, of the left now, because of what they had no, a, an anti-American leftist who's been in the White House for eight years. But I was going to say that, that the, but but the Black Lives Matter movement openly supports Asada Shakur. They read her Asada's no, that's prayer. Their hero. Yeah, that's their, their hero. hero. And I've never I've never seen the media once ever ask. And, and what I've said what is, happened. there is no the only liberals in this country are conservatives. The Democratic Party, the New York Times, the Washington Post, it's all a left-wing, anti-white, anti-law and order, anti-American, whatever you want to call it, movement, coalition. And and occasionally, I mean, that doesn't mean that every single individual uh, in those institutions or or who calls themselves a progressive is a full-throated, uh, anti-American terrorists, but they support them. The New York Times got Kathy Boudin out of jail. She's a murderer, and now she's teaching at Columbia 
of college. She teaches in the School of Social Work, Columbia University, I should say, in the School of Social Work, and she's got a program, and every teacher in the program is a convicted felon. That's what, that's what our, our academic community looks like today, supporting the Hamas, uh, you know, terrorist cheering squad, Students for Justice in Palestine and the Muslim Students Association. And anybody who thinks the Muslim Students Association is some innocent religious organization should, you know, put into their uh, whatever it is, salad bowl, the fact that Anwar Alaki, and not just Anwar Alaki, because there are about a dozen that have been identified, but Anwar Alaki, who was the head of Al-Qaeda in Yemen and, uh, you know, the mentor of the Fort Hood terrorists and many others, uh, Anwar Alaki was the president of the Muslim Students Association at Colorado State. And as you point board. And so was her father. Her father was a member of the Muslim Students Association. Muslim and as you mentioned, yeah, so well, of course, because it's a Muslim Brotherhood front, and it's on all our campuses, and it's coddled and supported, uh, and its lies that it's a cultural religious organization are fully accepted by our college administrators, and that's because Republicans have just ceded all this ground to a, a very dangerous left. They're not, they're not well, challenged. And, Donald Trump and, is, and the also, first, is the first Republican to challenge this. What other Republican, name me one, would have called Hillary Clinton going to lie her to her face? There is none. Or looking at it from the other side, what Republican president-elect, whose chief strategist, our friend Steve Bannon, was being denounced, uh, defamed, slandered as a white supremacist, a white nationalist, and Jeff Sessions was being libeled and called a racist. You name me one Republican who would not have thrown them under the bus. Yeah, they, or, or, but that is going, or would have that is creating yeah. a revolution in our politics, standing up to this vicious, unprincipled, anti-American, anti-white, anti-Christian left that calls itself progressive. Well, and since you mentioned I mean, Van Alton, I, I, I don't know. My my broadcasts are often, or when I'm on, is often monitored by another uh, uh, anti-American organization uh, Orwellian, with an Orwellian name, People for the American Way, their right-wing watch list. Um, it's time. The problem with this country has been that conservatives have been minding their own business and have not fought these battles. How did we turn our universities over to communists? You have to ask yourself that. It was by not fighting. I, I mean, I, I well, hope and, that Trump has changed that. I think he has changed that mentality. He's shown, and that's what political correctness is about. It's about a communist party line. It's a term, political correctness, that was coined by Mao Zedong, well, probably the greatest mass murderer in human history. 
Um, and it meant the party line. You don't deviate from the party line and you get cast out and you lose all your friends and you become an unperson. And that's what Republicans are afraid of. They don't want to be politically incorrect. They don't want to cross the commissars. <laughs> and Trump has blown that up. God bless him. Well, and, and you know, you, uh, you know, I've talked about this before, the institutional left. You know, one of the things, though, is the overwhelmingly you, – you, the Discover the Network site had some great stuff on there that I've been going – I've been doing work on the institutional left stuff because of Kellogg's, because of the Kellogg's Foundation. Uh, it's given me some freedom. Well, I, I've actually wrote come. about those foundations. If you, um, I don't know if I gave you this book of mine. It's called uh, The New Leviathan, and it's about how these – 501c3s, tax-exempt foundations, another thing Trump needs to get rid of. Um, these tax-exempt foundations um, uh, distort our politics. Uh, they're, they're, that's where the left is entrenched. It has billions of dollars. It's, like, it, 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 it's outfunded, outfunds the right by about 10 to 1. Now, look, there are legitimate tra- charities. Um, but Kellogg Foundation is giving money to Black Lives Matter. That's not charity. That's vicious yeah, political investment. And uh, Ford Tides Foundation, Foundation needs to be and, yeah. abolished immediately. You have a $12 billion foundation in the Ford Foundation, um, which is accountable to no one. It has a board. Henry Ford, when he retired, denounced the Ford Foundation as betraying everything that all the principles and the, and the society and the economy that created it because they were anti-capitalist socialists and they're responsible to no one. They have more discretionary spending than the federal government. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a gross distortion of our democracy. Uh, I actually have yeah. written a new book. It'll, it'll be out in the, three days before inauguration. It's called Big Agenda, President Trump's Plan to Save America. Um, and uh, among part of the agenda that I want Trump to take on is, and it doesn't have to be Trump, it needs to be the Republican Congress, is to redefine what charitable is so that political institutions don't, don't get um, tax-exempt monies. Well, I think that's a great idea. And I think to sunset the ones that exist, to sunset, you know, yeah, the, the yeah. foundation yeah, no, shouldn't I... be allowed to exist in perpetuity, and it shouldn't it shouldn't exist beyond the life of the founder. Or, you know, one of the ways all these foundations turn left is you have a bunch of rich kids. The the founder dies, like the MacArthur Foundation is, is one example. Um, who was very conservative, and his kids, who were born with silver spoons in their mouth, they're privileged and they're stupid, and they're funding uh, the anti-American left. And, and Republicans, I mean, I, you know, unfortunately, Grassley is the chair of the committee. I try to uh, broach this with him once, and his eyes glazed over. But uh, it, there's got to be a push for this. This is hugely important. Yeah, I think I think it's actually 
in a lot of ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, in case there's a blind leftist listening to this, yeah, it would put me out of business, too. But it would put the conservative tax exempt uh, entities uh, out of existence, the ones that are actually political entities. You know, hospitals are charity. They, can't, they don't deny people uh, access to their facilities. Um, but the ACLU or, the, or, or Planned Parenthood is not a charitable organization. It's a political machine. Um, anyway, uh, but I, I just I don't want anybody saying, oh, that's hypocritical, David, because you are involved in the same kind of thing. Yes, I am. But I'm willing to give that up. Um, in order to save our country. Well, it's the same thing Trump said, you know, when he was asked about taking advantage of tax loopholes or whatever. Well, that's what you do. If you, if there's, if there's a tax loophole, you use but it, but that doesn't loophole. mean you. It's, a, it's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe it is the same as a loophole. But you know what I I'm mean, saying? That, that's why the Ford foundation, why was the Ford foundation created? Because the um, income tax, in the thirties became a very significant, uh, I forget, I forget the actual reform, but it, it, it threatened the Ford fortune. So they put it into a tax exemption. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, David, I, I always love talking to you. I, I really appreciate your time and just, uh, it's, it's always, it's always great to hear from you. Next time you're on, let us know what you really think. Don't, don't hold back, David, because, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try to do that. Yeah, try to do that. I've got, anyway, I've got great... to a point. It's it's one of the privileges of getting to my stage of life where I, you know, I'm not <laughs> worrying about doors closing. Well, I guess I never did, but um, I I feel an obligation to call the shots the way I see them. Well, and I I, I think that the as bad as things are now, and they're really bad in a lot of ways that most people I don't think recognize. You and I have talked about this. We, you know, you know the institutional left better than I do, and even me knowing it as well as I do, I know it better than 99.9% of the people out there. And it's very frustrating to me because people don't understand the forces at work and how much money they have and how if you – yeah. Like my, part of my frustration, for instance. Well, as I said, I've written this book with Jacob Laxon called The New Leviathan. And the, the last hundred pages is just charts which show all, list all of the so called progressive foundations, how much money they have, and contrast it with the conservative ones. And, and for example, on environmental issues, it's something the monies on the left are out rank or number the uh, monies um, you know on the on, on the right the right the money is for environmentalists that don't want to destroy our economy a thousand to one it's not small stuff it's huge so you have well, these lobbies. Thing, what, if you, what do they lobby for they lobby for the government to underwrite their left-wing projects uh, so the whole yeah. there's an article actually in the I think in the Weekly Standard today um, 
I think the guy's name is Berglund or something like that, on how um, all these progressive schemes have now been built into the federal government, which, whereas the idea of what the government does is to benefit the whole, all the people, they're, they're very partisan. Um, so there's a lot of house cleaning that needs to be done by a new Republican administration. And and if you don't and like you say, if you don't do it, the problem is that a lot of these groups are just specifically demos or a lot of these groups, they're policy groups. And um and you don't see what they're doing with the lobbying and all these other minor well, law right. you know. And they they, so, dis, they disenfranchise the American voter. The Ford Foundation has more weight than millions and millions of ordinary and voters. I think and and the frustrating part to me is that even people on the right who sort of think they understand it, they think it's all – everybody attributes it to Soros. And as bad as Soros is – It's not Soros. Could, Soros is just the one of many. What Soros has done oh yes. is organized them, which is very significant. Right. But they, they were already there. You know, campaign finance yeah, reform, which <laughs> – took the money away from the parties so that they could be more firmly in the hands of the left-wing donors. People think the Republican Party is the party of money. It's the Democratic Party that's the party of money. Not that there aren't rich Republicans, but it's nothing like what's behind the Democratic Party. But institutionally, like, it's not even close. Like you say, it's 10. I'm actually starting to update some of the recent figures because the most recent figures I've seen are from 2009 uh, about how much money they have. So I'm starting to update that uh, spreadsheet. I have a spreadsheet that I'm updating these, these things on. And one of the things that's interesting about the right is the funding on the right, the Walton Foundation, the, the, the Walton Family Foundation from Walmart, is ju- it's, like, it's so overwhelmingly big compared to everything else. And when you look at what they fund, it's not all right. It's not all the, the, you know, for instance, the Walton Family Foundation funds Common Core. They're big into education. And so even that, if you look at these left-wing groups, like you say, the Ford they Foundation. They need to they eliminate these foundations. Yeah. You know, money can go to hospitals, actual charities, not to policy. Yep, and that's I where mean, it's all going it's, up. It's Dave. ridiculous. Yeah, call it a loophole in our tax laws. That you allow people to conduct political um, operations and political campaigns with tax-exempt dollars. Why? That, that is so destructive of the democracy. People should form voluntary associations, and if they want to pay for a, 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 a think tank that supports certain policies, God, God bless them. That, that's the American way. But you can't have these gigantic things like the Kellogg Foundation is one of these left-wing foundations. And, and it's partly because the left, the left are all missionaries. They're trying to change the world. So if you look at what are called philanthropoids, that is the people that staff these, these foundations, they're all going to be leftists. 
And that's another yes, way the they, foundations are lost. The Pew Trusts were controlled by one of the most conservative families in the country, but it was taken away from them by their own staff that they had hired and made into a left-wing foundation. And then you get things like uh, when Zuckerberg is going to have this um, uh, fact-checking arm, and the fact-checkers are all leftists. <laughs> Right. Oh my. Anyway, yeah, well, it's and, conservatives yeah. to wake up and fight. Well, and you, and you I should think, leave and I got with that message. No, no. I well, no, no. That's a, that's a great message, David Horowitz. Great, David Horowitz. Thanks again. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, and uh, we'll catch you next time, David. Thanks so much for taking the time. Okay, Lee. Bye bye. There is David Horowitz. I just I just love talking to David. Like you say, it's it's you know what he thinks. <laughs> Every time I talk to David, I'm never left with a sense of confusion. Like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what David thinks about that issue. I always know what he thinks. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Hang on one second. Let me find this. It is well, how many minutes past the hour? It's a lot of minutes past the hour. It's 53 minutes past the hour, and. Uh, which one do I want to play here? See, I have all these choices now. It's almost it's almost too many. Let me see. Oh, I know. I know which one I'm going to play. I have, I have all these different... Here, here's a good one. I have all these different bumpers. Here we go. Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stranahan. I should also mention at this late hour that Radio Stranahan is brought to you by Citizen Journalism School. Do you watch the news and find yourself thinking, I can do better than this? If you know how bad the mainstream media is and you want to make media that's better than they are, I started Citizen Journalism School just for you. CitizenJournalismSchool.com will give you the information and allow you to sign up for the free mailing list and get our free course building your own media empire. But I want to tell you about a program that is for people who are serious about a career in journalism. If you really want to make a difference, we have a program called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, where you work directly with me, one-on-one and in small group settings. And the best part is it's a fraction of the cost of journalism school. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com right now to get more information. CitizenJournalismSchool.com. You know, one of the things that David mentioned there is talking about how people on the left are are missionaries. And I've talked about this a little bit before on Radio Australia, and I'm sure I'm going to talk about it again. Here's the reality. We need to adopt some of that on the right. If you want to get serious, you need to adopt some of that on the right. I've talked about how the work that I'm doing, it's not just a job for me. It's something I've really put my heart and soul into and took a big income hit. By the way, like I said, I mean, I had a career in graphics and was making a good living and gave that up to go into news media, especially after Andrew died. I think I doubled down. That's when I doubled down because after meeting and becoming friends with Andrew Breitbart and seeing what I'd seen, I simply could not go back to my old life. There was just no way to not to want to stop things. And look, in 
in a very real and meaningful sense. You heard David Horowitz talk about this. And by the way, thanks to both of our guests today, John Cardillo and David Horowitz. Great guests. Love talking to those guys. You heard David David talk about this, how happy he was that Trump has been elected. I got to say, I I could not be happier either that Trump is elected and that we mentioned Steve Bannon a couple times today and that a guy like Bannon's in the White House. For me, and I think a lot of other Americans, it's a dream come true. But now it's time to not play defense. Now it's time to play offense. It's part of why I'm doing this show. I'm trying to build my platform. We talked about that with John Cardillo today. I'm trying to build my platform out there. I'm trying to get my voice heard more because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's not going to be reform. It's going to be revolution. If CNN doesn't want to put me on, which they don't, CNN doesn't want to let me near any one of their microphones. CNN does not want to put me on camera, and it's not just because of how I look. That could be a factor. Let's be honest. I do have a face for radio. That is honest. Full disclosure, I'm seldom described as hunky Lee Stranahan. Very seldom. But I am America's finest journalist. And they don't want me making you smarter. You see, CNN doesn't want their narrative challenge. MSNBC doesn't want their narrative challenge. ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, your taxpayer-funded does not want their narrative challenged. And that's why, for me, it really is a mission. It really does mean something. If we're going to win, we need to think bigger. Luckily, we have a president who's shown that. We have a president who against, not right now, the upcoming one. I'm just assuming. Sure, maybe this electoral, maybe this will be the time they stop him, is with this electoral college thing today. Maybe this is it. They're out there banging their drums and beating their heads about the electoral college. Not going to work. Everything they're doing is failing. Because at the end of the day, I want you to think about this. David Horowitz pointed out there's 10 times more funding on the left. 10 times more of the funding. But they don't have 10 times the people. Hillary Clinton didn't win the popular vote by 10 times. She won the popular vote because of California. That's why she won the popular vote. And I got to say, we really don't know how many of the vote, those votes were illegal. We just don't. They've created an indetectable fraud machine, something I should talk about on an upcoming show. I hope you enjoyed the show. We had two great guests today. I must say, and I'm just going to, you know I love you, but I'm going to harangue you a little bit. I would have liked some phone calls. What do I want for Christmas? More callers. That's what I want. I'm going to let you try again tomorrow on Tuesday's edition of Radio Stranahan. I'm going to give you another shot because I care about you that much. Till next time, I'm Lee Stranahan. Thanks for listening, and keep up. Whoops, keep fighting. That's what I want to say. Bye-bye.